So I recently uh, read a book by Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And outside of the Bible, it's probably the most helpful book I've ever read in my life. Um, Early in the book, he gives kind of an example of how different cultures deal with suffering in different ways. And he talks about how religious systems have different expectations of what that should look like. Buddhists, for example, believe the best way to deal with suffering is to detach yourself from people or material possessions. In essence, the less you love, the less you suffer when you lose those things. Hinduism promotes the idea of karma. Now, they probably didn't realize it, but in the Bible, Job's friends believed in karma. It's the idea that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, so if you want to avoid suffering, you just do the right thing. It's that simple. Some religions have a moralistic view where suffering is a way to work off a sinful debt, and so in that case, suffering is a means to salvation. But the one we encounter most often in our American culture is a secular view of suffering. This is the idea that suffering is an enemy and should be avoided at all costs. Suffering threatens the American dream of a comfortable life that's trouble-free. I think one of the most telling assessments was by a man by the name of Dr. Paul Brand. You might recognize that name. He was an orthopedic surgeon who was made famous because of his dealing with those who have been afflicted with leprosy. Listen to what he says uh, in this quote. He says, In the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients live at a greater comfort level than any I've previously treated, but they seem far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Suffering in a secular culture is an unwelcome interruption to the pursuit of happiness and a life of comfort. It's not too hard to see how quickly we go into panic mode as a society when we encounter difficult circumstances. And one of the reasons I know that's true is because it's been true for me. I've had to confront that idol of comfort in my own life and and recognize how I have allowed that cultural norm to shape my view of suffering as well. I'm not sure how we would have survived in the medieval ages when one out of five infants died before their first birthday. And of those, half of them didn't make it to the age of 10 years old. Our suffering, if you look at history, pales in comparison to previous generations. And yet, as Dr. Brand says, we seem far less equipped to handle it and far more traumatized by it. That's the view of suffering in a secular culture, but I think you would agree, shouldn't it look different inside the church? After all, don't we serve a God who has a first-hand experience with suffering? Didn't Jesus enter into the deepest uh, amount of suffering imaginable through his death on the cross? And yet God still took that terrible injustice and used it for our highest good. So we know from what we believe to be true in Scripture that God is both acquainted with suffering and yet completely sovereign 
so that suffering is never wasted in God's economy. I love the way Tim Keller summarizes it when he says, other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys for seeing the coming sorrows. But Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows and taste the coming joy. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that you have great things that you uh, want us to know and understand, not only about what is to come, but what has made, been made available for us right now as your people, through the work of your Spirit that is present within us. Now, Father, I think we just get a glimpse of this and, and many times just barely touch on all that you've made possible, but maybe in some way today, through your Word, would you expand our vision? Would you give us an increasing clarity of how you want your people to live this side of heaven in the hope of the joys of heaven yet to come? Help us see that more clearly this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would turn to Romans chapter 8, and we will pick up where we left off last. So if you want to follow along with me, I will begin reading in verse 18. So Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. I think it's important to see that this topic of suffering that we will now enter into in verse 18 is actually tied to where we left off last week in verse 17 where Paul says we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed, here it is, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So to be united with Christ means to be united in his suffering as well as in his glory. So as a Christian, we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. It's a, it's a normal part of the Christian life, and that's even made clear by the words of Jesus when he tells his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that you may have peace. He goes on and says, in this world you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now, we know, of course, that suffering is not unique to Christians. I mean, everybody suffers in this lifetime in some way. But in addition to what is common to man, Christians do very often encounter a, another degree of suffering because of their life in choosing to follow Christ. Jesus made this clear in John chapter 15, verse 20, when he said, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they clearly did, then they will persecute you, and they clearly will. When we truly represent Christ in a sin-cursed world, we can expect to be treated in the same way that he was. Suffering in a sin-cursed world, is really the evidence of faithful obedience. 
but no matter how much we suffer, Paul reminds us that it will not compare to the glory that is to be revealed. In fact, I believe the more that we suffer here, the greater the joy we will experience in heaven. Now, it's a very poor comparison, I'll tell you that up front, but over Christmas, we uh, decided as a family to put together a 1,500-piece jigsaw puzzle. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into as we tried to take the picture that was on the box, which was this beautiful scene, and then recreate it with 1,500 pieces of a puzzle. It took us hours, not just hours, days of putting this thing together. And I can't tell you what a triumph it was when we put that last piece in and it was finished. It was like, wow, that was amazing. Now, we could have made it a lot easier by just buying a kid's puzzle 10 pieces and been done in less than five minutes, right? But there's really no reward if there is no challenge. Well, in a similar way, the same is true with persecution. The same is true with suffering. There's really no reward in life if we don't have some struggle and challenge along the way. Now, let me be clear. I am not a big fan of suffering, okay? That's not the case at all. But I do know that the glory in heaven will be infinitely greater than anything we experience here in this world. And I do believe that the deeper our suffering here, the greater our joy will be in heaven. I think Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, when he says, For momentary light affliction, that's what we experience this side of heaven, here's what's going on, on the other side, is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And Paul says all of creation, not just humanity, all of creation longs for this day. A day when the children of God and all of creation will be made new. The Bible tells us that the, the lion will lay with the lamb. Now just picture that in your mind. The lion will lay with the lamb. It tells us that there will be a paradise created that far exceeds even the Garden of Eden. We know that's true because God will be ever present with his people and sin will not exist. Far greater than even the Garden of Eden. But until that day, Paul says the creation has been subjected to futility. Because the impact of our sin spread to all of God's Creation. In other words, when humanity fell, creation fell. And since that day, all of creation, Paul says, has been a slave to corruption. What was once perfect is now plagued with disease and decay and natural disasters. Even the beauty we see in nature is only temporary. The grass withers, the flower fades. There is nothing in creation is, that is as it should be. And when I say that, I have to pause and just think how amazing that really is. Because I don't know about you, but I've stood in the meadow of the mountains, surrounded by 14,000-foot peaks with flowers just scattered across the ground. And I remember standing in that place thinking, I can't imagine anything more beautiful than this. And what Paul is saying, it doesn't even come close. Creation is subjected to futility, but God knows that that futility is not final. Even in the midst of sin's curse, there is a 
promise of hope. Because one day, all of creation will be renewed beyond its original beauty. And it groans in eager anticipation for that day. Like a woman in labor, they long for that new life and new hope. And what is true for creation should be equally true for us. Look at how Paul continues in verse 22 or 23 when he says, And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what already they already see? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And creation waits in eager anticipation, and Paul says, and so should we. The picture for the word grown here in the original language is this idea of someone kind of craning their head just to, just to kind of get a glimpse of something that's just barely out of view. And the reason this is true for us, Paul says, is because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we get a small taste of heaven right now. Now, now kind of get a picture of what that's like in your mind. I want you to imagine having been outside working on a hot day doing some kind of manual labor where you walk in in the evening and you're exhausted. But as soon as you walk in the door, you smell that smell of a home-cooked meal. I mean, it just makes your mouth water and you walk over and you get a little spoon and you taste a little bit of taste of what's going to be coming and it's awesome but it won't even compare to being able to sit down and have the full meal, right? Well, right now, through the work of the Spirit, you and I get a little bit of taste of heaven, but it doesn't even compare to the full meal yet to come because now the Spirit indwells His people, right? But then we see God face to face. Now the Spirit brings comfort in our suffering, and we're grateful for that, right? But then, in heaven, there is no more suffering or pain. Now, the Spirit strengthens us in our weakness. Again, we're thankful for that. We get a taste of that. But in heaven, we are made perfect and complete. Paul says we look expectantly for that day when we are adopted as sons and that our body is redeemed. Now, last week in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, we talked about how we've already got the, the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. But heaven is where that adoption is made complete. It reminds me of what we see with adoption uh, today when a child is born. Typically, there's a waiting period before the adoptive parents are able to take that child home. And speaking from experience, I'll tell you, it's a pretty agonizing time <laughs> because your heart's already connected and you cannot wait to embrace that new life and bring it into your new home so that you can be a new family together. Well, in some ways, we're in that waiting period right now. Our adoption is complete, but we're still waiting to, to begin our new life in our new home inside God's family. That's when we receive the full and complete inheritance that God has promised. Where everything accomplished by Christ has become our full reward. 
We suffer with him now, but Paul says, but we will be glorified with him in heaven. And part of that glory includes the redemption of our body. Listen to how Paul describes this to the Philippians. In chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, For our citizenship is heaven, from which here he goes on and says, We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate, which is where we are right now, into conformity, get this, with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Remember, we've said all along that being united with Christ means that whatever is true for him is true for those who belong to him. In the same way that the body of Jesus was made perfect and complete, the very same thing will be true for us. Not as an improvement on our current body, but this is something completely and perfectly new. Listen to how Paul describes it to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 42, where he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Paul's clearly making the point that this is altogether different. That what God has in store is not just an improvement on what we now have. It is something completely different and perfect and complete. What we have now is temporary. What we have then and what we will receive is permanent. What we have now is corrupt. We know that this outward shell is everyday decaying, right? But what we have then is complete. What we have now is perishable. What we have then is eternal. So we should, should long for this new home and the redemption of our bodies. It is in this hope, Paul says, that we are saved. And this is not a hope like I hope it rains tomorrow because as you well know around here, maybe it will, probably won't, right? But this is a confident expectation, even though it's something that we cannot see. It is the eager anticipation that becomes the motivation for our endurance. We see this in the life of Christ. The writer of Hebrews talks about this when he's talking about Jesus and he says, for the joy set before him. That's the eager anticipation that Paul's talking about. For the joy set before him, what did he do? He endured. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he goes on and says, For consider him who has endured such hostility from, stranger, from sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus is our example. He's the source of our assurance. Because we can look at the reality of his resurrection and all that has made been true for him and with confidence know that the exact same thing is awaiting us. For the joy set before us, we endure the suffering that we face. Look at how he continues in verse 26. 
Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul says that creation groans for restoration, that that Christians groan for redemption, and here the Spirit groans in our weaknesses. Because the Spirit understands the limitations of our humanity. In fact, the Spirit understands our needs better than we understand our needs. Even our prayers are lacking because we have such a limited perspective. We just don't see the big picture. And so the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And and I don't know about you, but this is really comforting to me because what it tells me is that I don't have to pray the perfect prayer. This is not a formula that I've got to say the right thing in the right way to somehow get God to respond. What it tells me is that our prayers are being perfected by the Spirit. I don't have to say the perfect prayer because my prayer is being perfected by the Spirit. You don't have to have it all figured out. In fact, The reality is there is no way you can. We know that because Isaiah 55 says, My thought is not as your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Our words, our understanding, and our human limitations always fall short. But the Spirit of God prays in accordance with, with God's will. And I believe when it talks about the Spirit of God with, with groanings that, that are too deep for words, it's, I, I think it's because words are not needed. The Spirit of God is a part of the undivided fellowship of the Trinity. So no one person of the Trinity is forming anyone else of something what, of what they don't already know. Instead, what they're doing is collectively affirming God's highest good for you and me as we belong to him. We may be praying to know God's will, but the Spirit of God is working continually to fulfill God's will in us. That's what's happening. The Spirit has a power, it has a, a wisdom, an understanding that we do not possess on our own. Keller has a great statement in his book where he says, God does not always give us exactly what we ask for, He gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything God knows, (laughs) right? And so we can rest. We can rest in the fact that that our suffering is never wasted, that our pain is never ignored, that we are never alone, and that God never abandons us. Now, I know because I've been there, sometimes it feels like he has. (laughs) Sometimes it feels very lonely in the midst of difficult circumstances, but we can see from Scripture, not only is he present, he is present and interceding on our behalf. So in your sadness and grief, you are never without hope. In your loneliness and disappointment, you are never alone. In your confusion and disbelief, the Spirit is continually working to lead you through. There is never a time the Spirit of God is not working on your behalf to fulfill God's will in your life. 
That's a promise. Now, as we finish up this morning, I want to just kind of give you three practical principles for how to endure suffering well, okay? And they're really straightforward, not complicated. The first one is this, think on truth. The second one is pray this truth. And then finally, walk in truth. If you'll remember, Paul told us in this same chapter that the the mind set on the spirit brings life and peace. And this is just not some idea of think happy thoughts, right? This is filling your mind with biblical truth. Now, this goes against what the world suggests because the world suggests that when you go through hard times, the goal is to empty your mind. But what God is saying in his word is to fill your mind with truth. Truth about the holiness of God. Truth about the beauty of grace. Truth about the the promise of forgiveness, the hope of salvation, the work of the Spirit. Think about the glory that awaits you until that joy of what is to come sinks deep into your soul. Commit these truths to memory and rehearse them in songs of praise. So when your mind, in the midst of suffering, tries to convince you that somehow this is a result of a bad choice that you've made and that God is now punishing you, you can now tell yourself, no, that's not true. And the reason I know that's not true is because Jesus Christ took all the punishment that I deserved on the cross. As we've learned in in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you feel lonely and abandoned, remind yourself that God promises, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is true, think on these things, especially in the midst of suffering. And when you do, turn those thoughts into prayers. Lord, I know you are with me because that's a promise. Would you help me experience more of your presence in this moment right now? Lord, you know, you know I believe. Will you help me in my unbelief? Lord, will you renew a right spirit in me and lead me in your everlasting way? Take the truths of Scripture and turn them into your prayers. And no matter what you pray... Know that your prayers are always being perfected by the Spirit. He understands our weaknesses. He intercedes on our behalf. Even when we are weary, the Spirit is always working. So find strength in the assurance of His provision, even in your prayers. Think on truth. Pray this truth. And then finally, walk in truth. As we know, Paul... Uh, had uh, some challenges in his life. He shared uh, a lot about his suffering all throughout his letters. In one place, he talked about the thorn in his flesh, right? You have heard of, uh, of that before, and we don't know exactly what that is, but we know that it had become a burden in his life because on multiple occasions, Paul asked the Lord to remove it from him. It, it was a burden he did not want to carry. At some point along the way, we know that God spoke into Paul's heart, and what he said was, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is perfected in your weakness. 
And Paul goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And if you've ever been through difficult times, and I'm sure you have, you know that many times, even though it's a difficult time, sometimes we experience God most deeply in some of our greatest seasons of pain. C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. But oh, how eagerly we wait for his return when all that pain goes away. And so, if you are dealing with a chronic illness, let me just first say, I'm really sorry that you have to carry that burden. But let me remind you that there is a day coming very soon where there is no more suffering and there is no more pain. If you've lived a life that has been filled with sorrow, and I know plenty of examples of people in this church family where that's true, I need to remind you that there is a day when the joy will be so great that it will wipe every tear away. I don't understand how that works, but I believe that it's true. If you have really been challenged in this life to battle temptation or addiction, let me remind you that there will be a day when that battle is over because sin and temptation will be no more. Christ is our hope in life and death. We are united with him both in our suffering and then ultimately in our glory. In this world, we will have trouble. But no amount of trouble can compare to the glory that is to be revealed. So while we're here, as we walk through this world, remember to think on truth, to take those truths and turn them into your prayers, and then to allow that to influence how you walk in truth as our lives put on display the truth of God's gospel message. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for the assurance of your spirit at work in our life, even to the point that when we don't have the right words to say, you are already saying the right words on our behalf. Even though we are weak and weary, you are always at work, and you do not grow weary or become tired. Father, thank you for giving us just a taste through the presence of your spirit in our lives of what, what is to come. And yet we know that what is to come far exceeds anything that we can experience this side of heaven. And we do, along with all of creation, long for that day. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. I think it's really good for us to pause to look at passages like we have this morning. Because I think very often we get lost in what is and can become overwhelmed and we lose sight of what will be. And sometimes if we can catch a glimpse of what will be, it helps us endure what is, right? And so let me just encourage you to take some time this week to go back and revisit what we just walked through and remind yourself about what will be and see if that doesn't in some way help you endure what is right now. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for not leaving us to ourselves and having to figure this out on our own, but you have graciously given us a glimpse 
of what will be. You have clearly made promises of what will come. And we can endure the difficulties of what we face now so much more when we don't lose sight of what you say is to come. So help us be mindful of that as we carry on in the days and weeks ahead. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.